Our text this morning returns us to a section of James which we've been discussing for several weeks. Today's text becomes the conclusion for this long section of James. And what we've recognized amongst many things in this text as we've looked at the connection to Proverbs and many unique components, but what we've recognized as the main theme in this concluding section is the epic conflict which surrounds every man, every woman, and every child. Everyone who has ever walked this earth has lived in this struggle. It is one to which we are born into and we face every day of our lives. And it continues until the last day that we draw breath. Obviously, a universal clash of this nature demands our close attention. And through this study, we've gathered insight into how to biblically understand and wage this war in which we are all engaged. As you may remember or will note from your sermon sheets there in the worship guide, our title continues to reflect this conflict, The Eternal Battle. The Eternal Battle. Part three is this is our third section in James 1, 12 through 18. Let's read the text together and then we'll make some comments about it. James 1, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The eternal battle. I mentioned our text is a conclusion to an extended section and we've reconnected those individual sections as we've come together week in and week out and gone along and I'd encourage you to go back and to refresh yourselves on those connections. But there are two main elements that we need to keep in mind which we've repeatedly discussed and we need to understand as we come to the text before us. They are very important for our discussion. And the first is the repeated theme of contrasts. We've seen that as well as in Proverbs, the book of James as a wisdom book, often use contrasts verse to verse or section to section to show us the continuity of what's going on. They become an important mechanism because they explain all of these connections and they reveal the continuity from one verse to another and again within sections. The second repeated theme that we need to keep in mind for today is the idea of trials. 
trials were introduced to us all the way back in verse 2 in our very familiar verse from James. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. A verse that we all know well and have learned and spoke much about over the past weeks. Well, trials not only began this section, but it continued again in verse 12 where it says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trials. And as we discussed, these two word trials create bookends for this section of scripture. An inclusio, if you will, from an academic perspective. And this identifies for us one section of God's word and one continuous area of discussion. But the idea of trials continues not just to verse 12, but all the way through our verses in verse 18. And we saw this particularly last week in verses 13 to 14 in the word temptation. And if you look quickly at your Bibles, you will note that in verses 13 to 14, that word temptation occurs about four times in those two verses. Well, that is the same root word for the word trials in verses 2 and 12. This is just the verbal form of that same word. And this is very important. It helps us understand God's role in these trials. We discussed last week the unique components of testing and trials. And again, I'd encourage you to refresh yourselves on that message if you miss it. And as we noted, the depth last time is the way in which God allows these trials to occur. He does this through testing. But as verse 13 confirms, God tempts no one. The way that this is resolved is a function of the result of the trial. If the result of that trial becomes that which leads to sin, as our verses 13, 14, and 15 show us, then it is temptation, and it is something which God does not bring to our path, but comes from another mechanism. If it is that type of a trial by which we grow, either through positive success or even through failure, but failure which does not lead to sin, then it is a test. And we can assume that God has brought that trial, that test, so that we will grow. And this is a very important distinction because God does tempt no one. Obviously a vital understanding in each of our lives because we all have trials as we've discussed. This is what we saw all the way back to James 2. That we're to count it all joy. And we recognize the difficulty of a, a major trial coming into our lives and being able to count it all joy. And that there is a perfection that comes through that. And again, we saw that development in all the way through verse 8 of that section. But as we consider those trials that come into our lives, the importance of this recognition of God's role in not tempting us is the way that we respond to the trial. When major physical affliction comes into our lives. When major relationship challenges come into our lives. When major financial concerns come into our lives, what is our tendency? It is to ask the question, isn't it? That question being, God, why have you allowed this into my life? You who are sovereign, you who are in control, you who are all loving and good, 
Why have you allowed this into my life? And that question that is brought forward, by the way, questioning God is usually not a good thing to do. We see that Job tried it a little bit and it didn't work out very well for him. We saw David did the same thing, but God understands our weaknesses. He understands our frailties. So as these personal tests come into our lives, we have to recognize as a function of the result what the source of the test or trial or even temptation is. And it not only affects us on a personal level, but on a global level, the same thing happens as well, doesn't it? When we see the horrors of a tsunami that devastates hundreds of thousands of people, earthquakes that kill many, many people, when we see the horrors of school shootings and other atrocities, and we ask, God, why have you allowed such things? Recognize that when that result is a result that clearly is sin, such as in that last example of the horrors of the school shootings that are rampant in our country, this is not something which God has orchestrated nor designed nor has any part. This is the sin of man and the darkness of the world in which we live. This whole idea of questioning God has a, a theological term that we call theodicy. And that means to question or literally to judge God. Well, if we ought not question God, it's clear we certainly ought not be judging Him. So it's vital that we understand this idea of God's role because we know that trials come. And we have to understand that it is our response, either in that which is for growth, be a success or failure, or that which is through, uh, results in sin, that determines whether that is a test or a temptation. And so our ideas of trials and temptation continues, and our theme of contrast does as well, because in verse 12, we have a very positive presentation of how man is blessed by God with the crown of eternal life for persevering in trials. And I think we would all have to agree that eternal life with God is a pretty good gift it's a pretty good thing for us to look forward to, to know that we will be free from all of the difficulties of this earth, all of the sin, all of the challenges, and one day be perfect and like Christ. And that ought truly light our fire because it is an amazing gift. And the alternative, for we know that the scripture teaches that all men are eternal, the alternative that some will spend eternity apart from God, subject to his wrath, that is a pretty daunting proposition as well. So we recognize the, the very good gift and the very positive element of our first point, the victor over trials that we saw in verse 12. And the contrast of this positive beginning was in our second point last week, the conquered under trials in verses 13 to 15. And this being conquered occurs through that process of sin. Temptation arises as we are drawn away in our lust. That lust is conceived and so then is sin which is birthed. And that sin being brought forth results in death in verse 15. This is being conquered under trials. And everyone in this room knows this process. 
every one of us succumbs to this horrible scenario. And every one of us has been in the seat of the one conquered under trials. Well, we obviously like the first part of the contrast better than the second. That is, we like being the victor more than being the conquered. Well, as we contrasted from positive to negative in our first to second point, we contrast again from our second point to our third, now from negative back to positive. And our third point, the one which we begin this morning, is titled, The Victor's Earthly Reward. The Victor's Earthly Reward in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 gives us a command not to be deceived. And James adds to that command, my beloved brethren. A term of endearment. Something that we saw in less significant form back in verse 2, where he referred to them as my brethren. This was James' association with the church. We remember that the James that we're speaking about is the Lord's brother. And he is the pastor of the largest church of the time in Jerusalem. And he has been the pastor throughout that church's history. We see in the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, that although the Lord's brothers initially denied him, that after his death and prior to his ascension, they had believed. And Acts 1 confirms this. And not only did they believe, but James has taken the role as the pastor of this church. And he continues to associate himself with them, which is such a vital consideration. Paul also uses this same phrase 61 times he does so. But now, James is much more emphatic in verse 16 where he says, My beloved brethren. Although Paul uses this phrase a couple of times, James will use it three times in this short epistle. And the power of James' desire to connect with the church is a function of his understanding that he is as they are. He relates to the people because he knows that he is one of them. He was a rejecter of Christ, as they too were a rejecter of Christ. It is so vital for us to understand that he wanted to make certain the people thought that he's not some high and lofty prophet or apostle or one who is claiming the brotherhood of the Lord. There and y'all down there just simply can't relate to my high and lofty status. Absolutely not. Nor should any pastor. And we see those things going on. We ought to ask ourselves, is this healthy? Now, I have often found myself and people have come and said, you know, you're a little too transparent, pastor. You, you kind of, you talk about some of the ways that you fall short. You talk about some of your sins. You're always kind of relating things about your own life. And, you know, that, that might be a little too transparent. And there may be validity in that. But I believe that a pastor needs to show himself more transparent than he needs to show himself as some high and lofty theologian. And therein I would prefer to err every time in that direction. And James did as well. And so he calls them my beloved brethren. And he gives them the command to not be deceived. But the question arises, what does that command come from? What is he referring to that they are not to be deceived by? Well, it could be because there's really only two components that are possible and they come in the previous verses. It could be the reality of the processes of sin that some might think that sin just happens. 
Or maybe that sin isn't a person's fault. God just made me this way. So I can't be in sin when I do this action. I can't help that I'm an alcoholic. It's a weakness that I have in my makeup and my physiology. God made me this way. I can't help that I'm addicted to my opioid pain medications or to marijuana or to meth or to crack or to you fill in the blank. Addicted to immorality or to spending or to eating. God made me this way. I can't do anything about it. Well, this would be a good thing not to be deceived about. But this is not the case because these sins and that assessment are self-indicated as those which are contrary to Scripture. The one who is deceived in these issues of sin, sexual aberration, or addiction are either self-deceived or they are externally deceived. And the Scripture makes the point repeatedly and confirms that this perspective is unbiblical. So that is not likely what he's referring to, although be it true. Well, that leaves the other option being God's role in the process. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, about God's role in tempting you. He has no part in your sin. He has no desire in you that you should sin. And this is what James is talking about. Do not be deceived in the, into thinking that somehow God is responsible for this. That he is behind this temptation resulting in sin. So as trials and temptation come and we ask the question, we must immediately recognize that if we have fallen short and we have sinned as a result of the trial, therein making it temptation, it has not come from God. And the point of this line of thinking is simple. It's an effort to blame God rather than to take responsibility for your sin. And he says, don't be deceived to do such a thing. This is man's natural response. Oh, it's not my fault. When caught in sin and impropriety, the natural instinct is to blame someone else. You know, I, I will, as I ran around the house with my two little brothers that were pretty close in age, every time I got in trouble, I was like, oh, Terry did it. Oh, Lonnie did it. Certainly wasn't me. I'm sure none of your children would do that. But this is what we do. Or if it's a subsequent offense, our tendency is to be, do worse yet and to lie. But if we come up with a good enough excuse, we do not have to lie. It's been the case from the beginning of time. What do we see with Adam and Eve? I mean, can you believe it? They eat the tree from the tree. They know that it's wrong. They're ashamed and so they make leaves to hide themselves and they're hanging out in the shadows when God is walking through the garden and he calls out and asks where they are. Obviously not a question he needed to ask. He knew where they were. And, and in their shame as God confronts Adam and says, who told you that you were naked? And Adam says, oh, the woman you gave me. <laughs> she made me eat. It's her fault and it's your fault. Not my fault, dude. You made her. She did it. Not me. That's the way we all are. And James says, do not be deceived. This has nothing to do with God. So James begins by nipping our natural tendency in the bud. Do not be deceived. Oh, and he connects himself by way of my beloved brethren. I know how you're feeling. I do the same thing. 
I too want to point the finger. I too don't want to take responsibility. I have this tendency. So now that he has straightened around this issue, he shows us the contrast from the one who might be tempted to blame God for sin in verse 17 where he says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. This is why God can't be blamed. Because every good thing comes from him. He doesn't give bad stuff. God doesn't make no junk. I know there may be some grammatical issues with that statement. But that's the reality. That is the reality. God only is one who does good things. And he doesn't give his creation bad things. It's against his nature. When Jesus told the disciples to ask the Father for their needs in prayer, he described this very condition in Matthew 7 and verses 9 to 11. By the way, another reference to the Sermon on the Mount. Many already in James. Listen to Matthew 7, 9 through 11. Oh, what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will not give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? I can't imagine the tenderness of one of my sons coming to me and asking me for a loaf of bread or for a piece of fish and to give him a stone, to give him a snake? Who would be so wicked? But even in my and our evil inclinations, we recognize the need to give good gifts and how much more our perfect heavenly father who has created all things for us and given us all good things As God is good and holy and righteous and perfect, he cannot give that which is not good. He will not tempt anyone, as verse 13 says. And when he allows trials, they are for our good. For our success in passing through them, or even through our learning through failure, but never through our sin. And the extent of God's goodness is expressed in the two terms he uses to describe that which God gives in verse 17. Two Greek words, both that are translated as the word gift in several translations. The first relates to the act of giving. Our New American Standard translates this, a good thing given. The act of God's giving is good and all good. Everything in it is good. Nothing that God gives us is anything but good, as we've alluded to a moment ago. And this is represented in the phrase of even his action in giving as being that which is wholly good. The second phrase relates to the gift itself, and it translates well as perfect gift or every perfect gift. You know, the gifts for my birthday, a wonderful book, hard felt and sought after from my family, a gift of cards showing love and kindness, 
They're expressions of love and goodness. And these are the kind of good and perfect gifts. Those were perfect gifts for me. And that's what God gives to us. Perfect gifts. That second word for gift is used only of that which is given from God to man. Used only one other time in the Bible. And that's in Romans 5.16. And in that section in Romans 5.16, you know what that gift is referring to? It is there referring to the gift of the righteousness of Christ that God gives to believers. How good is that gift? How good is it to understand the great exchange where Jesus Christ takes our sin upon himself and gives us his alien righteousness so that we are seen clothed in the white raiments of God? That's a pretty good gift. That's the righteousness of God. That is the type of perfect gift that's being given. And this gift and its act, which relates to that which is good, are focusing on that of the greatest religious significance in salvation. These gifts, they are not just regular gifts. These are gifts that have eternal benefit. These are gifts which are meant to open men's eyes to who Christ is. Notice also at the beginning of verse 17, it says every good thing given and perfect gift. The indication here is that there is nothing given from God that is outside of this goodness. Both in act and the gift itself. These are all from above, that is, from heaven, as we see in our verse. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. You know, that's, that's such a perfect perspective for us, beloved. Colossians 3.1 tells us, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, that is, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated. Seated at the right hand of God. We are to always be focusing on heaven. Our minds are always to be focused above in recognizing what God has done for us. Why is that? Because if our eyes and our focus and our attention is on heaven, we're not going to be down here dwelling and wallowing in the mire of this world. And the rest of our verse further expresses the source of these gifts above as coming down from the Father of lights. Even our verb coming down accentuates the progression from heaven to earth. And so does the description Father of lights. Initially, we're brought to think of every light source that we might think of, incandescent, LED, and all that we know of the man-made world. But this would be an incorrect consideration. Remember, in order for us to understand God's Word, we have to place ourselves back into the lives of those to whom it was written. What were the lights that the people of James Day of AD 45 used? They were little clay lamps about that big around that held olive oil and they had a woven wick that was stuck into a spout that was lit that was the lamp that they dealt with on an ordinary day but it wasn't that which was being referenced here at all rather what was being shown here in the father of lights was the picture of the the heavenly luminaries that God created in the sun, in the moon, in the stars on day four. 
Those beautiful pictures that Psalm 19 tells us show us God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is nowhere, there is no voice where he is not heard. All day long. God is proclaiming himself through the luminaries, through that which he has created, the sun and the moon. And some say, well, what about, you know, people that are blind? Does that mean they just aren't going to get to see this? No, because what does Psalm 19 tell us a few verses later? Nothing is hidden from their heat. God has made himself clear in his manifestation to all people. And this is what's being proclaimed as the father of lights. The sun and moon and stars given, by the way, go back and read Genesis 1. Go back and read Genesis 1 a lot. Genesis 1 through 11 is so vital for our faith. And as you go back and read it, you see a few things there. And it tells us that on day four, when God created the sun and the moon and the stars, that they were given to us. They were given to us for signs. They were given to us so that we would understand seasons and demarcate day from night. Do you ever consider what signs the sun and the moon and the stars indicate historically? Can you think of any? Can you think of anything that the sun and the moon and the stars showed historically? A star over Bethlehem that showed the coming of the Son of God. And one more in the future. The darkening of the moon and sun that will show the return of the Son of God. And all the way back in Genesis 1, God said, these are given for signs for you. And those two signs will be that which shows us the Christ. In addition to focusing us on the stars, this shows us God in heaven who is above these heavenly luminaries and looking down on us from that light that is coming from them. And as their light given by him is bathing our earth, so these good gifts are coming down to us. We've already seen the character of the giver back in verse 5 of James 1. The one who generously provides everything that we ask in wisdom. And now we're exposed to both the uniqueness and the changelessness of the giver in our closing phrase where it says, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God has just been the one who's been described of creating the heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. But now, unlike those lights which change in intensity... When we think of the stars as our earth rotates, we see some for a while and then we don't see them for a while. The moon comes and we see its different phases and its light changes, increases and diminishes as it waxes and wanes. And the sun, even as we change through seasons, its intensity changes. But God has no such variation. He is unchanging. It's the message of Malachi 3.6. In Malachi 3, 6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God's changelessness tells Israel that to that point, to the conclusion of the Old Testament prophetic text, they are not consumed. 
And they will never be consumed because God is unchanging. Oh yes, they are diminished, but Israel is being preserved by God. Because he does not change and he has said that forever they will be his children. His great promises, beloved, that are ours forever are the same that preserve that wonderful nation and the children of God that he has chosen and drawn to himself. And in addition to being unchanging, God is unique. And this uniqueness is what is described in the phrase shifting shadow. Think about that for just a minute. I love this phrase. Think of the brightest light you can imagine. Maybe aircraft landing lights. Think of an array of aircraft landing lights, maybe being side by side in a circle, maybe six feet wide and just over your head. And they're shining down on you. Going to be pretty warm, warmer even than you might be right now, definitely warmer than I even am right now. But as you think about that light shining around you, that intensity coming down, if you took a light meter and you put it on the floor around your body, there would still be changes in the intensity of that light. Because all light casts a shadow. There is no light that, of which we are aware or which we have ever seen that does not cast a shadow no matter its intensity, no matter the number of devices that are placed. Even if you were to put a circle of suns about yourself, there would still be a shadow. But God casts no shadow. Shadow. Isn't that a beautiful consideration when we think about Revelation 21 and 22? The eternal state, the new Jerusalem, in which there will be no need for a sun or a moon because the Lamb will be its light. What an incredible consideration. And connected in this whole idea is what John has in mind when he writes 1 John 1, 5. He writes in 1 John 1 and 5, This is the message we have heard. From him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He's speaking about physical light, that in God there is nothing but an eminence of light that comes from him, but also that he is all good. Exactly what we saw earlier, and it is a, a, a confirmation of that truth. And this is the victor's earthly reward. This is what we get, beloved. These are the good and perfect gifts that are coming to us. And they come from our glorious and unchanging and unparalleled God. I love one commentator's note about this, where he says, With God, there is no variation whatever but only an unchanging refulgence of blessedness and of glorious goodness. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Isn't that something you want to be in the presence of? No variation whatever, but an unchanging refulgence of blessedness and of glorious goodness. This is incredible news because amidst the eternal battle, which every person wages every day, God gives these glorious gifts. And the recipient of these gifts ought to be overwhelmed with joy. And the question arises at this point, who? Who receives these gifts? Because this is pretty incredible stuff, wouldn't you agree? This is better than your brother getting the Christmas present that you wanted. 
This is amazing. Well, our fourth and final point answers that question. The conqueror's heavenly resolve. The conqueror's heavenly resolve in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The verse begins by stating that the following action is by the will of God. It's not by man's will. It's not by a simple wish. But it is by the will of God. It's not man's will. It's the will which God has in his unlimited power, the ability, but not just ability, the desire to bring to completion and perfection. This past tense verb indicates that it is a completed act. As God wills, it has already occurred. That which God wills, and this is showing to us, as we discussed last week about his decreed and his prescribed will, this is the decreed will of God. That which will come to fruition. God willed it and it happened. End of story. And what God willed follows next. He brought us forth. Notice this is the same verb used in verse 15. Look back at verse 15. When lust is conceived, it brings birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sin and temptation and that which is not of God brings forth death. But in our verse, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. God brought us forth. And this, this wonderful verb shows us that he is bringing us to new life. James repeats that word and he does this often to show the contrast. The bringing forth of that of man which brings forth death and the bringing forth of God which brings forth life. Furthermore, that repeated verb shows us that this is a spiritual connotation. He's not talking about physical birth. This is a spiritual bringing forth and another past tense action. God willed to bring us forth. That is to give us new life. And beloved, it was a done deal. Although the act of our salvation of that good gift was yet to come because it would not come to fruition for years as we were not born. But in the will and the mind of God, it was as done as if it had always been done. From the foundation of the earth, God knew you. God loved you. God chose you out and decided and willed that he would bring you forth. Bring you forth into a new life by the will and mind of God. God's bringing us forth is the act of his regenerating of us. It, it is to be partakers of the new covenant. And, and if we flash back to those wonderful verses in Jeremiah 31, 31 and Ezekiel 36, we remember that to be a partaker of the new covenant, that which we will celebrate in a few minutes around the table, means that we have a new spirit. God has placed his Holy Spirit within us. And as Stephen was reminding us this morning, our bodies are therein a temple because his spirit dwells in them. And how would we treat a temple? 
Would we fill it with all kinds of poisonous things and do that which is inappropriate to it? I would think not. So we have a new spirit and we have a new heart. He has come and he has taken and he has done open heart surgery on us. And he has taken our hearts of stone and he has given us a heart of flesh. And he has written his law on our hearts so that we would know that he is our God and that we are his people. And there is a sealed knowledge and an understanding of this. If we are his children, if we are partakers of the new covenant, and we have his spirit, and we have a new heart, we know he is our God. We know we are those who receive these good gifts. And this is what it meant to be born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. To be born again to a living hope, as 1 Peter 1.3 tells us. Is that how you live, beloved? Do you live as looking forward with a living hope to that which is coming? To the eternal reward which God is holding out for us? How incredible to understand, not just that God brought us forth, but that he did it by his will. He wanted to do this amidst the full knowledge of man's sin. God understood every one of your sins. He understood every one of my sins. And still, he willed to bring us forth to new life. Notice also the mechanism by which this happens. It is by the word of truth. Now, we discussed this concept of truth just on Wednesday night as we went through the wonderful verses in Philippians 4, 8 to 9. And in that text, as in our word today, the, the word of truth is Scripture. As John 17, 17 tells us, your word is truth. It is by the scripture that God brings life. As Dr. MacArthur notes, it is the power of the word of God that regenerates sinners. Colossians 5 reflects the same concept of the word of truth, where it says, Paul writes in Colossians 1 and 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the truth of one man, the man who was God paying the price for our sin, and that there is only one way that every sin must be paid for. And either you will pay for your sins for all eternity apart from God in hell and never make full restitution and payment, Or you can receive Christ's free gift and payment to you now. You can recognize and repent and confess those sins and live a life of confession according to this word. And realize that in that, you have new life. What a beautiful picture of the power of the word of truth. And God has done all this so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures as the end of verse 18 reveals. This is the purpose of the whole action. We are those who reflect this new life by which we've been brought forth. Those who are to echo the kindness and goodness of God. All of this because of the conqueror's heavenly resolve. This is not by our action or power. All of this is by God. Our action was back in the second point the conquered under trials. 
But our first and these last two points today, they're all God, beloved. Is God going to tempt us in sin such that we would fall from grace and that he would remove all that which he has willed and which he has given us? Absolutely not. His desire is to see us endure the trials in our lives so as to inherit the blessings of the crown of eternal life which he has promised. His desire is to give us the showering of good and perfect gifts which reflect his magnificent and magnanimous character. This is what he willed to happen. So our only question is to whom does this apply? Well, we've already been told it's to those who have been brought forward by the word of truth. So who are these? Those that have been called to the gospel. Those who have confessed the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess Jesus Christ with your mouth, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is this you, beloved? And remember, confessing and believing are not a one-time act. These are ongoing verbs. We must be continually confessing Jesus Christ to show that we are those who are truly saved. We must be continually believing in our hearts and obeying his word and seeking it to know that we fall short, to recognize that process of sin, it's still ongoing. And we have to fight it every day. Is this you? Are you living this kind of a gospel-centered, empowered, Christ-following life? Love, this is the answer to whom this all applies. To those who have been brought forth by this word of truth. That is to each one who realizes God's role in providing every good thing we have. Do you understand the gifts that God has given us? Do you realize that we are the most blessed people to ever walk the face of this earth? We have the most provisions. We have the most security. We have the most abundant provision that God has ever given to a people do you realize it's all from him? And knowing God's hand of carrying men through trials and rewarding them for what he has done, do you realize that God is the one moving you through? Are you continually exalting him and reflecting on the amazing gift that he has given us in his word and the power that he gives us to carry through these trials? And it is to those who recognize the eternal battle with sin and daily engage in the fight against it. Is this you, beloved? May that be the case for each of us today so that we may win this battle in which we are all engaged. And as we do so, we would glorify our amazing God, His amazing Son, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, and live a life of obedience to his Holy Spirit, which dwells within us. And I pray that that would be the case for each of us today.